This is Sheila. And this is Inez. And today we're going to talk about the finale, the ninth episode of CBS All Access's The Stand. This one is called The Circle Closes. We'll come back to The Circle because it keeps cropping up in this episode in both visuals and lines that keep getting repeated. This one was directed by Josh Boone, series creator and also director of the pilot episode. He developed it for TV with others, and this one was the one written by Stephen King. He's the only one credited as having written this episode. Be sure to listen after this episode for our exclusive interview with Brad William Hankey, Tom Cullen himself. He's with Sheila and I after our review of this episode. So, just right off the bat, did you like this ending? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I mean, like I had high anxiety for all of the parts that started deviating from the book because I'm like, oh, God, we're going into uncharted territory. And, you know, this is such a beloved book. It's been around for 42 years. I feel like he did really right by these characters in how he reimagined them and and closed the circle for them. So I, I'm a fan of it. I'm excited to see what happened here. Yeah, but the anxiety was rampant throughout. <laughs> Yeah, I really liked the ending here. The, you know, I watched it twice. I had to watch it twice. I went in with some biases already in the first time I, I was watching through it. I think that I was <laughs> just to cope throughout uh, the whole season. I've just been kind of leaning on to my knowledge of the book to kind of help me get through those really tense moments. But this episode, it was scary because it was uncharted territory for me as well. But I really loved this new perspective, this new ending. I, I think that it does a lot of the characters justice that I hadn't previously seen in other scenes So. For example, Franny is one of my favorite characters. And uh, I didn't think the show did well portraying her with the grit and tenacity that I got from her when I read for the page. So this was a great episode for her. Yeah, there's a balance that writers in TV have to work through when they have a large cast. Um, this isn't particularly large, but still, there's there's enough. And they call it servicing the, the character. And when you decide to do that for one character then that usually means you have to turn it down <laughs> for, for someone else and having come from the background with a book we know that those characters that they had to turn down were were tom and nick they figured into the book ending whereas they don't hear at all and i have to wonder if someone coming in fresh by fresh i mean having never read the book or seen the previous uh, miniseries how they'll look at this. Will they even notice that Nick was an important character, that his character didn't get everything it had coming to it? It just kind of... Like he just fizzled out. Yeah, yeah. No, oh my God, that was not pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh my God. One might say he blew up. Right. Oh my God, that was that was awful. I mean, like, this is why puns are so naturally, like, you know, in the forefront of my brain that, like, I make them and I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even mean to do that. He doesn't make the reappearance that we're, we're yeah. accustomed to. I'm going to I'm going to go quiet now. For people that never read the book, there's a long sequence 
where Tom has rescued Stu, but he doesn't, you know, there's only so much that Tom can do to help him besides physically move him around and stuff. And there's a long sequence where basically an, an angelic Nick shows up and they have like a long combo <laughs> and um, they kind of sort out the post-climax discussion of, of how things worked out with everything. And none of that is here. And that helps get Tom moving and, and so they can get Stu back to Boulder. All that gets skipped. We just get Stu back in Boulder. What I'm asking myself is, and you guys, is just if you hadn't known any of that, would that be there to bother you? Or would it just be like, well, you know, all's well that ends well. He showed up in Boulder, so everything's fine. The only thing I was really missing as as a present series watcher, right? So, like, not trying to compare this to the book, not trying to compare this to the miniseries. I came to love Tom in this retelling in, in a way that he didn't jump off the page the same way for me. I mean, he's a beloved character, but there's something in this retelling that just he tugged at my heartstrings and I just wanted more of his his escape from New Vegas how he got out of that body yeah burial situation so I, I yeah so I think that part for me is missing you know trying to try to look at this with the freshest eyes possible I think somebody who's coming to the miniseries fresh and and never having known that this was a multi-decade story in the making that yeah you would want that resolution in Tom and um maybe a little bit of their journey right from I mean like from yeah the, we know from the book that it was just long and and drawn out and like I liken it to like Lord of the Rings like they just keep walking <laughs> <laughs> But I, I would have wanted more on Tom, and I just feel that like that was an unfair sacrifice. I would agree with that. I think I, I really love the direction of this story, and I think from the story for that we experience, you know, the way that they intended us to experience this last one, I don't think it was bad, but I did miss it. I wish we had one more episode that we can fit in between to kind of just give us a little bit glimpse or maybe had made the episode a little bit longer just to kind of give us a little bit of all of that. Like how how does he take care, you know, grab Stu? How does he get out of this, you know, wagon of dead bodies that, you know, un, without anybody following him? Definitely valid questions and wanting to close the circle <laughs> on his story <laughs> i see what you did there <laughs> um but uh you know when i rewatched it the second time intentionally because i knew that i was letting my feelings get in the way because of the book i agree we could have used maybe even if it was just like a five minute glimpse into the journey some sort um, of montage yeah yeah they gave us a really long montage on the way there um, right. up until there right but then we get zero on the way back and i thought that was pretty significant situation to have been in granted in the in the books we get to see stew like you know, we really thought he was going to go. He had pneumonia and then, you know, Angel Nick, um, who I, Nick, honestly, my favorite, like, I think he was my favorite character, my favorite primary character in the books. And I already felt like there wasn't a whole lot of him here in this miniseries. Um, so I would have probably liked to see, but maybe it's just really hard to translate, you know, spirit talking to Tom on screen and have enough space and time for the story that they did end up going with with Franny. That's a TV making question that I'd, that I'd wonder and want to ask if we could get like an executive or a creative or something to, to answer. 
I've, I've watched enough of the various streaming services to get the sense that the non-traditional streamers, such as Netflix and Amazon or whatever, they don't always box themselves into an episode length the same way that a, stre a streamer that started on TV like CBS does. By that, I mean, if you go and check out the episode lengths for like, say, Stranger Things or something like that, they'll come in at like... 45 minutes 55 minutes an hour and six minutes or whatever you know just like a smattering they're all gonna average to be around an hour but some are much shorter and some are a little longer and it's just no big thing whereas you find like something say like hbo or cbs where they're used to having done tv programming things fit in slots basically they got this mindset that things got to they seem to have this mindset where things have to fit into these slots. And when they don't, it's like, oh, what are we going to do? Because I was just thinking about the idea of an extra episode when you were mentioning that. But the climax of the show would have happened like two episodes from the actual ending of the show. <laughs> you know, blowing right. up blowing up New Vegas. And then, you know, uh, Sam and Frodo. And <laughs> and then whatever the, the coda uh, scenes would have been. Whereas a slightly longer final episode might have given us a little bit more of that closure with, say, Tom. Some of that journey... Um, we know that it comes out okay, but then again, we've encountered a criticism with this show that, that they unfortunately ratcheted down tension by using that nonlinear storytelling device in, in, in the first few episodes. So what I mean by when I, when I mention that is, is just that, that always showing us how things end up has kind of weakened their ability to create tension. And they did that here. By just showing us Stu shows up. <laughs> you right. know? I was surprised that they didn't do something like that, like just modulate the time a little bit to maybe just fit in a few of these extra things so that, you know, it didn't have to be so long, but just to close the circle a little bit more for us. Ah, yes. We're going to we're going to try to cash in on closing the circle Seriously. as often as possible today. <laughs> so the that opening scene... Uh, we didn't talk about this in our first go around. The opening scene <laughs> <laughs> with uh, the practice route, yeah, with uh, Franny, and she's narrating, and the idea of changing and can we change is again, it's it's part of this circle thinking, and the circle is an idea that comes up in this episode. It comes up in other writings of of Stephen King's. The idea of circles repeat themselves. Maybe you're not going to be around for that repetition because the circle in question is too large you know the i.e the span of time is too long but it will and so the like the image of passing out the guns to the peacekeepers or whatever they call themselves would you guys be surprised to know that for all the violence in stephen king's books he's pretty anti-gun in politics he's he's like not really down with the guns i did not know that just from knowing his work yeah they really don't factor in much the Dark Tower's primary character, his his name is Roland, and he is a gunslinger. <laughs> that is his job. <laughs> he carries guns and carries fixes them. fixes problems by using yeah. them. But I mean, like in like the body of work that he's got, like I can't like. The, is there a gun in Pet Cemetery? I don't know, right? You know. Yeah, that's true. They are more stabby. Um, yeah. Normally, you um, know, if he had like a, a strong stance on knives, I would be like, okay, that I got a problem. <laughs> 
But that I believe. In reality, he's like, I think he's done with guns. Like, he's just like not totally cool with them. Franny's monologue in the beginning where she's laying this out, you know, can we change? Will we change? Are we capable of change? I feel like she was not optimistic about the human race ultimately surviving just because human nature being what it is and playing back. But I feel like when Stu returned, like all of a sudden, like her outlook completely changed. Yeah. Now all of a sudden I want to move to a gun quit, you know, and then opening her eyes to all the possibilities of procreation and 70 more or five more and 20 more and 70 more. <laughs> that comes later. But, right, um, right, right. But it just felt like there was this massive shift, this titanic shift in her thinking once Stu made his reappearance. That's true. It did kind of go from like the end of winter to spring and summer. Uh, <laughs> well, so everything's brighter, nicer. Well, his leg had to be rebroken and reset, so it took, took, takes time to heal. I'm sure they had the medical staff on hand to figure that out, too, after having walked on a bad break set badly for weeks. I'm sure that was just like a done deal. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, I, I guess uh, that intro scene, it wasn't until I watched it the second time that I started kind of thinking about I feel like that tone in the book was around Stu and like him kind of like thinking and, and talking. It was a, a very Stu directed kind of like ending. And this episode is about Franny. So I like that it's kind of sh like they, they shifted, you know, basically sharing the burden of saving mankind from all off of Stu and sharing it on to Franny because she is more than just a bearer of children. And what? so I <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Women can do other things than have babies. <laughs> but um so I I kind of took it like that, but I really like that perspective you're talking about Sheila that is very like a very somber kind of tone in the beginning. It was so crazy. It was trippy if you will to see the baby with the swollen neck from captain trips you know going through captain trips and that was that was really intense and i could definitely see how she could be in a very kind of dark place so yeah Absolutely. And, and this journey like watching her do this transition part of that was fed into the the trial that she gets to experience later that i'm sure we'll talk about yeah, if this had been uh, some some new version of the book, there might have been some dead babies thrown in there. But uh, since this is TV, no no dead babies, which was which was nice. Things things were looking up. It just took a little while to see it, and it coincided with Stu hobbling in. I have a question. Please, um, do you think that there's a major significance in switching Peter to Abigail from baby Peter to baby Abigail? I think it helps with that circular concept. It's a perpetuation of something that they that they want to remember and perhaps personify, you know, this this ideal, this person that brought them together in the first place. I like that. Okay. Yeah, I kind of took it the same way. Um, it took me off guard when she said it because I couldn't remember the baby's name. I had to read it after I finished watching the episode. And that's when I, I the saw. the same thing. I was like, wait, yeah. well, I know it was a boy, but what was his name? I was like, oh, yeah, it's named after her dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And at the end of the episode, Paul, I think that's when I kind of made that connection. <laughs> I'm not a smart man. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, there was other other hints that we got with other incarnations of Abigail throughout this episode. Like you guys mentioned, they decide to go to a gun quit 
that's part of the book. That's a very minor part of the very end of the book. Actually, I don't remember that journey being described much at all. No, they just kind of like decided and appeared in a gunk whip. But here, after some post-apocalyptic line dancing, which, you know, by the way, in, in my post-apocalyptic settlement, if no one brings line dancing from the depths of the survivors that join me, I'm not going to stand up and, and be like, hey, everybody, remember line dancing? Do, do we want to start that again? I'm not going to do that. You want to start a, a breakdancing circle? Paul? Oh, hell. Oh, I'm down for that. I, I mean, know. I might break something, but yeah, like line dancing is not really a thing where I live. So like the only line <laughs> dancing I really can think of is the like the electric slide and uh, like the cha-cha slide. So like if the cha-cha slide survives, I'd be OK with that. Yeah. You'd be surprised <laughs> how far down dancing is on my um <laughs> Oh, no, I don't, I don't do even this. need alcohol to dance. I do that in my kitchen on a daily basis. Mm. Uh, I'm a let me go smoke this joint and stargaze <laughs> for a fun time. <laughs> I'm a Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> more of a Glenn. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I was more of a stew sometimes, but I'm not. We'll just start calling it East Texas. How about that? Boy, that's loaded, man. <laughs> I would just say that they're a little more country. That's all. That's, that's all. That's very diplomatic and we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's fair enough. Yeah, so we we do get this um, departure scene, which, you know, Tom and his Dolly Parton shirt, and that was actually probably the most emotional moment for me was Tom saying his goodbyes. Um, the actor playing Tom sold it for me in terms of uh, a grown man with his challenges trying to, you know, reconcile that his friend is leaving and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he sold it. That was... As, as close as I get to crying about TV shows, that was it right there. <laughs> I did cry uh, a couple of times to you. My husband was really teary. <laughs> Steven, calling you out. <laughs> I really loved it. But yeah, you know, if they weren't going to give me a full-blown Tom-like episode, um, I was I was okay with this. I, I felt it too. It, it was gut-wrenching. I was getting the feeling that this was one of the few times in Tom's life that he'd heard that he was loved. And that's what kind of set me Aww. into into a very teary kind of a spiral. It's like, oh my god! I would bet that's true at least at least for twenty years. Yeah. G- given that he's in his forties, uh, say like since his mom passed away, kind of a thing. Yes. Yeah. Right. I, I could. Yeah. That makes it worse. Thanks. Wow. Sheila. Sorry to bring the mood down. <laughs> sorry. Well, we just we'll just use this moment to thank the writers for such a beautiful reimagining of this character. It was a treat. Very believable. He's probably like my favorite update, like in how they've updated the characters. He's just been my favorite update. It's not that I had a, a problem with how Dauber <laughs> portrayed him in the, in, in the old series. So that guy played Tom in the in the original series. I think he gave an honest performance for what was expected of him and playing a character with those challenges at the time. But I think that this actor goes further and gets more out of the character. I'm not familiar with the previous version of Tom, but in comparison to the book, I do like the glow up that they've done for him. I, I think that. it's I, lo- I think it's more respectful, probably more realistic, and it gives uh, a, a much better representation of that community's capabilities. Um, and in a post-apocalyptic world like Tom, man, he's he's 
I just really want people to go read the book now so they can fall in love with his character and love. And then you merge that with this version of the show. And it is uh, one of the best written characters in this season. I'll agree with that statement for sure. So off we go from Boulder and uh, they show us some amount of montage and kind of a lot of driving to wind up in Nebraska. I don't know if you guys can kind of picture where in your mind all that is uh, aligned. All I can say is that the distance that they traveled, you would fully expect to do in a single day for sure. So they must have had a lot of cars to winch out of the (laughs) And are you forgetting how like annoying it is to travel with a very small baby? The amount of frequent stops of diapers and feedings and it's like every hour to two hours you're doing something. That's fair. Oh, okay. All right. I'll give them that. But, <laughs> but they got to stop in Nebraska. It's it's like um, Nebraska figured into the book where Josh Boone and others had kind of taken Nebraska out <laughs> of, of the show. So Stephen King got a chance to write it right back into the book. He's like, no, really, I wanted it. Yeah. I mean, I did some research, though, because like Lorton, Nebraska was not in the book. It's about a seven hour drive from Hemingford home like from Hemingford, Nebraska. It's not even, it's not your Polk County. (laughs) And it had a population of 24 in 2019. Oh, so it's a, it's a relatively booming Nebraska community. When when you ask me to do research or you don't ask me to do research, I just do it. It's, it's in depth. (laughs) Some of what happened in Lorton uh, reminded me of some other Stephen King properties. There was, well, of course, the children of the corn, uh, just because there was the presence of corn. There was also a, a story that he had written about a man who decided to murder his wife and then threw her body down a well that took place in Nebraska. Not that any of that has to do with this. It's just like the imagery of it seemed, I won't say recycled, but I'll say familiar from other King reading that I've done. But you could tell when they got out of the truck and they started to play like the ominous music <laughs> that, that something had gone awry with their uh, journey. Like, why did they think it was okay to set up shop near a cornfield? Like, that's me. I was like, oh, people, aren't you recalling these dreams that set you off on this on the first place? Weren't y'all dreaming about cornfields in the beginning? Nice call. Good call. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. I was like, I would have just like legged it out until maybe I saw wheat. Instead of corn. Kansas is right next door. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Something in a sorghum. (laughs) Yeah, you know, a barley. (laughs) Any other grain, really. Really, yeah. So, so much of this episode then really revolved around Franny, which which we've all said that we're, we're, we're fans of because she didn't really get sort of the airtime in the book at the end. Right. So everyone, everyone got to make their stand. And, and this is Franny's opportunity to to make her stand. So she has this moment in the well and she's encountering Randall again. Where did this leave you? This conversation that she has with Randall. There's a lot to unpack here. Let's start with the, him wanting the kiss. Like, what was that about? <laughs> I mean, it was, that's a bit. That is like really unfair because, like, who doesn't want to kiss Alex Skarsgård? <laughs> Um, maybe, or maybe maybe it's just me, but um, that would have been no, very... No, I'm, I'm, I'm in silent agreement over here. I'm nodding my head. It's a podcast. You can't see me nodding. I can feel it. I, like, I'm connected. Yes, You're right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she's got some willpower. I really loved Franny in this scene. 
I felt like this whole season, they've kind of downplayed her. There's a lot of stuff about her personality in the books that I really loved um, because she wasn't just kind of this like dainty person that needs help all the time. She's got grit. She's super resilient. She had to bury her parents. You know, she's been through a lot. She's a tough woman and she's doing all this while being pregnant. Um, And it's a lot of trauma that she's going through. And I love that we see her come into this and she's in the most desperate kind of scenario you can think of where all the answers point to where where she she should be uh, which is just survive so you can take care of your kid right and all you have to do is kiss this really like sexy satan's nephew (laughs) character (laughs) you know and like that's all i have to do i probably would have failed this test and who knows i'm really curious about what you guys think what the kiss would actually result in but you know but paul i'm going to shoot over to you so you can answer sheila's question what do you think about it i think the conversation had both the promise of things that he could do and things that he he couldn't do but wasn't going to point out that he couldn't do we know that he feeds on being worshipped being feared all that stuff but i think that the kiss would have been enough of a submission he asked for it, you gave it kind of thing that that would have been enough, you know, for him to have that small hold over Franny that he was asking for. Like a jump start, a car battery. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> yeah. I think he's uh, I think uh, let's see in the last podcast, I said that I think he was probably just resetting. You know, he the bomb was enough to vaporize him, perhaps, but he's not really physical like like we are. He's made of something else. He's supernatural. So in this period of resetting, though, I think he's starting over at, at, at power level you know, one and to rebuild. He needs several things. One of those things is a cloud of nascent negativity which when the planet was full he could he could live off of and and use but also just that direct fealty that uh my life for you kind of stuff and the kiss would have been that and that would have jump started him up maybe to level two for all i know but that would have been enough (laughs) to get that little cyst in the back of her brain that would have been the presence of, of randall hanging out and doing what he said seeing through her eyes so she says something to him that didn't sit right with me, and I just want to kind of pick your brains about it. When she says, oh, you want to possess me the way that you did Nadine and Harold. And I just feel like this is letting them off a little too easy because I feel, for the most part, that they operated out of their own free will. And the the lure of the cult-like leader that I feel a Randall is. What do you guys think? I interpreted that whole scene to be aligned with the idea that Franny didn't have a clue um, about that. Like she's never been in possession or uh, of Randall. She hasn't really been influenced. He hasn't. He has infiltrated her mind before, and it was terrifying. But it, she doesn't really know the depths of the relationship that Nadine had with Randall, and she doesn't even know that Harold didn't have any kind of connection with Randall. So I think it's just the fact that she never got an intelligence update. <laughs> 
<laughs> if you will. I mean, all the people who who know that kind of stuff don't exist anymore. They all were vaporized, and she might never really know that that's not his power. But I also noted that Randall intentionally didn't correct her on that either. So I'm hoping that it's more of him being like his little sneaky kind of self of uh, like what Paul was saying, where he's lying by omission, maybe, um, and not so much. I, I think that that's probably just just to kind of flex a little bit like, oh, she thinks that I'm more powerful than I actually am right now. But I'm going to let her like think that because what I'm trying to convince her that I can actually heal her. And maybe that's, at least as far as Harold's concerned, a way that she can reconcile with having spent so long with him and trusted him. Well, if he was possessed, then I could understand why he was party to blowing up Nick and a few others at Mother A's house. Whereas the truth being, he was actually a dick and kind of crazy and was intentionally putting on a show, using up all of his available extra energy to put up a front, a facade of normalcy for most of the time that I knew him. Like, if I was in her shoes thinking that, well, he was possessed is like an easy way out (laughs) of not having to to face the idea that I actually trusted an actual evil person. Right, like a lunatic. Yeah, Um, that's a good point. I, I hope so. <laughs> but as far as Nadine's <laughs> sense to me. As far as Nadine's concerned, I don't know that she was possessed, but I do think that Randall had maybe even the same kind of thing that I described as like a cyst in the back of Franny's brain that he was proposing. That sort of thing when he, you know, did the Ouija board treatment on her, it stuck something in her mind that guided her. Not in the sense of like possession, but more like she couldn't get him out of her mind and in do in so doing that guided how she was going you know what she was doing the choices she was making to some extent yeah that grooming behavior it's more organic and subtle in her development because she was a young girl so that makes sense that you know she still had her free will but she's living in this home and this one person that's saying that you're my world you're my everything and i've got a life for you like your entire you're gonna be my queen right yeah those are like that's grooming behavior a hundred percent but you're you're right very different from possession because she did make her own decision ultimately at the end of the day. And Paul, I think you had asked this question the first time around we did this. Um, (laughs) You know, what do you all think about Randall's ability to make good on his promise to actually heal Franny and save her life? I think his powers are confined more toward pain and suffering. It might even be like if he's causing the pain, then he can let up and cause less pain. <laughs> but in terms of like mending broken bones and that kind of stuff, like we see uh, Mother A's younger avatar perform later in the episode. I don't know that his powers extend to that side of things as much as I don't know that Mother A, for whatever powers she may or may not have had, I don't know that she could hurt you. Maybe it's like a Jedi sort of thing, right? <laughs> and there's and there's there's the good powers and the bad powers. And maybe he's, again, lying through omission. He's not saying, well, he is implying that he can he can fix her broken bones and stuff like that. But I don't know that that, that picture we have in our mind of a, of a fully mended human being is what he's promising by saying that. 
Yeah, I'm not sure what he was able to do in that moment, only because he knew she was dying and like there's no doubt that she was dying. But also if he couldn't fix her, and I'm kind of playing both sides of this, like if he couldn't fix her wounds, then she dies. So this was all for nothing then. So I'm not I'm not sure. Maybe he just wanted that kiss. Or maybe, you know, is <laughs> lonely, like the opposite of like a fairy tale, you know, like, let me give the kiss to the dying girl as opposed to let me get the dying girl, and bring her back to life. <laughs> yeah, I'm just alone, shirtless. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> shirtless and, you know, um, my queen has shuffled off the mortal coil. Right. Like, what do you think the extent of the kiss would have been? Would it have been a possession or like that that presence that you're talking about? Or like, do you think that that it could be more? And the reason I'm saying this is I kind of was having thoughts of my own kind of hypothesis. And I went down three different tracks. But I, (laughs) one of them, (laughs) one of them was uh, on a dark side. I was thinking, you know, I wonder if this is, you know, some way to gain access to her baby because it's a the one of the few only pure creatures and we know that he has this ultimate desire to procreate into his little dark princess and princesses and was wondering if like somehow through this kiss um it connects him enough with her that it's more than just seeing and poking in what she sees but maybe more access to this baby that she's breastfeeding so she has a physical and emotional connection in the upbringing of this child so that was kind of like one of my far-fetched ideas about why he really wanted this kiss i don't think that's off the table (laughs) believe it or not um i was just thinking of a series of events that happened in the dark tower series of books where basically someone winds up pregnant with someone else's baby by a series of supernatural uh, like jizz collections and transfers <laughs> that seemed <laughs> a little implausible but you know it's what happens so they got and it takes several several books for it all to kind of pan out so yeah i mean that that kind of stuff is on the table um when you're in right, the King's Franny's, universe. Yeah, because Freddie's no longer pure, right? She already she had the baby, so Yeah, so it may not she be may not fit the criteria. Like the kiss may not be enough to impact baby Abigail, but maybe future babies, you know, like tainting the, the source. You know what I mean? Oh, oh. Like embedding in the DNA, like the antibodies from Franny's body saved the saved baby Abigail from trips. This would be uh, Randall sauce <laughs> <laughs> incubated <laughs> in, yeah. in the babies two through five. Exactly, it's just a working theory. <laughs> yeah. So some of my uh, my my Catholic school upbringing came to the forefront because this was mirroring what Franny was going through with Randall of like the the temptation in the garden, right by Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like, so Satan came to not in the garden. I'm sorry. When he was in the desert, he was there for 40 days, and Satan came and and tempted him. And you know that's this notion of get thee behind me. And I mean she calls him you fucking 
what you call him? Fucking monster, demon? I think. Monster, yeah. But, uh, you know, it was like, get thee behind me, Satan. And actually, Mother Abigail says that earlier on in the series as well. That was kind of like the imagery that got conjured up for me because, you know, ultimately this is a story about good and evil. And there is very, very heavily Christian overtones in this book um, and in this retelling of the series. So I just wanted to know if either of you picked up on any of that. Sort of. I've been trying to reconcile like some of that Christian imagery with the little bit that I know. (laughs) (laughs) And because we applied it more heavily to Nick earlier. Yes. But we've also been talking about the idea of the five Boulder City elders, if you will. Right. And how they functioned as a whole where individually they didn't have necessarily what it took to be like the one the only leader of the of the town so they they functioned as a whole to apply the best parts of themselves to make this this one unit that that could do everything with nick having been um attributed some of those christ-like characteristics earlier and then her saying that again i am getting that vibe again that that together they're the Messiah, right? They're the ones that we need to get us through this, the apocalypse. Um, She's part of that too. Again, which makes this version of the ending, it it, it brings it up to date in a way. It was mentioned earlier, she gets to make her stand where in the book and the other series. Now, once she was sitting, she was sitting. There was no more standing for her, but she gets gets her, her chance here. Yeah, I loved Franny in this scene a lot. I think that this is where we get to really appreciate the richness of her character that's described in the books that I felt like has been missing this whole season. I've been kind of bummed about that, but I felt like this was a big redemption kind of way. So thank you, writers, for for doing that for me. Yeah, so I think that uh, by this time in their journey, that you know, it's been about a year now that they've lived in this new reality. So I assume that they have picked up on that there are is enough physical evidence that it's probably smart to go ahead and make a god toolkit for everybody and maybe that was just maybe everybody just kind of realized okay you know like there's some legit stuff here from mother abigail with this god stuff so if i was atheist before like just like glenn was describing there's there's so much coincidental evidence and consistent practices and consistent experiences that you can't rule out this element of uh, of the god presence so just taking a moment here for the fellow listeners who anybody who might be like a really like strongly feeling atheist i'm also i'm i'm no religion like i really even hate to say atheist because i really just don't practice anything of it so to me i'm just taking this as like this is part of the story it's the reality of the story and franny is very resourceful she's picking up her lessons from mother abigail into this and they're probably also because of the spiritual connection it it seems like abigail was already kind of like with her as she's come in here and she's found her way to her well abigail figures into this circular story imagery uh hugely bigly as (laughs) as used to be a word in the before times in the in the before (laughs) times (laughs) right right um we get to see old abigail we get to see what i think may be a young abigail or some like i mentioned an avatar of her or i don't even know what i had always thought that the abigail in this story was simply an old woman that of all the people left on the planet that were going to survive, she, 
by some force opposing flag, which she considers to be God, picked her to have people rally around and carry forth her her message. But I didn't necessarily ascribe any other supernatural, you know, qualities to her. But here it it seems like there probably is more to her than that. Or maybe it's since she's since she's died, she's become <laughs> more connected to the overall plan than she was uh, before. She's in the zeitgeist. <laughs> yeah. Well, even deeper. Um, she's maybe even talking to the guy who's making the plans. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that part where she says that she that you know things can be going great, but then God will tell you that you still have work to do and you still have pain to go through that got me freaked out in the moment because i was thinking oh man either fran or or, or stew is is gonna die and that was the pain that i was thinking she was referring to but that may be that she was referring to that younger uh version of i think herself that appears to help out fran and i keep wanting to say stewie <laughs> and it is not <laughs> Stewie. Uh, <laughs> oh, we'll allow it. <laughs> hey, you know what? Franny, Franny probably, they probably do call each other Franny and Stewie, you know, in their own space. So <laughs> I feel like if he can call her Franny Oakley, we can call him Stewie. There you go. He seems not very Stewie-ish, but, I, but I'm just mentally... Uh, uh, That's where you're at. I get it. Still in a funk from the first recording uh, going away. Vaporizing on us? It, it, yeah, yeah. It was the hand of God. <laughs> Maybe it was. Maybe it was. Um, I'm going to call her Avatar Abigail because I've got baby Abigail and I have mother Abigail. So, And I really love Avatar Abigail. So thank you so much for that, Paul. So Avatar Abigail. <laughs> Maybe Abigail. Abigail, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I am really curious about like who this character is and what kind of physical being it is because I have trouble kind of reconciling that it's like that it is um, some like random girl who survived and she's just literally been waiting her whole like a year for this moment. Her little circular crops, her crop circle, In literal that tent crop circle. When there's a house just a little bit away, <laughs> right? So. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure how long she's been there. So I'm going to go ahead and adopt that she is an avatar kind of presence because Mother Abigail did not seem to have these kinds of healing abilities. I mean, they had that man who came in who had died from his wounds from um, Randall in, in the hospital. She didn't try to save him then. So my guess is that she didn't have this kind of power then that she does now because she was able to like loyally take care of God's will in this whole like story against evil. My vote probably leans in that she's more like... She, she is this kind of reincarnated avatar kind of being. I would hate to think that she's been sitting out there for a year in that crop circle. So I actually pay a lot of close attention to the end credits where they have these these little montages, right? So there's a collage of of things, and oftentimes it's like Harold Emery Louder and you know his his address in a gunkwit, and it's a it's a letter from a publishing company. But there was one for this end credit scene. It has. The cross, the same cross that Avatar Abigail is wearing. It has what looks to be Mother Abigail's glasses, those very round, I call them John Lennon-style glasses, like the round glasses with the metal frame. 
And also there was some lace, which I associate with like 108 year old women, uh, <laughs> not necessarily like little girls. So but there was just these connections in the imagery that I was like, that had to be without a doubt, Mother Abigail. So that validated for me and what you guys are saying too. like, there's no way that she's just been hanging out in a crop circle for 11 months or 12 months or whatever it is. <laughs> Yeah. And the fact that she knew their names and that Kojak wasn't ruffled by her, right? So Kojak, I feel like, is this otherworldly connection, you know, being able to come back and find Stu and, you know, the fact that he wasn't upset when this person, you know, came up and took their baby and was comforting her. Well, the interesting thing there that probably I would have noticed better on second viewing had I done a second viewing but now that I'm thinking about it, when Kojak is distracted by the girl in the in the corn, he goes over and his tail goes down and and he's but he's not whimpering and he's not whining, at least not in the screeners that we have. So if you're listening to this and then, oh, he was whimpering. Okay, well, the version we saw, there was no whimpering and whining. And that's important because he's not like you just said, he's not scared. He's more like odd <laughs> or, or whatever the dog respectful right yeah He's respectful yeah and uh that's how do you make a dog show that because we only have a few things to go on with dogs and the lack of of whining and whimpering is probably that and not barking and being excited and, and other doggy kinds of emotions that's an important thing to note before we go we have like five minutes before i turn into a pumpkin uh so Same. There's a few things that come up over and over again. The idea of standing after all the bones get fixed. She says stand. <laughs> and the idea of, <laughs> of uh, be true, stand. The idea of standing. I'm sure that it's more of a metaphorical type meaning. Just the, the idea of being a pillar, whether you're standing or sitting or whatever your version of that is physically, is as long as you're representing your convictions and those convictions are are true then and by that i think they mean good then you're okay you're you're with us uh you'll help build a better world and that's the kind of i think that's the the message here standing being true and these are also stephen king words that he uses elsewhere in the dark tower books in particular the idea of standing and being true is because those whole all those books are about kind of a dark versus light sort of uh, metaphor and that is the overarching message of the light is stand and be true here he's just flipped the the words be true and stand one thing i did like that i wanted to point out was that i like the fact that somebody from like the before times knows that randall's alive because in the book he just appears on this you know remote island but this interaction with Franny now lets the after, right, the after this event, people know that he's still out there. Oh, good call. So I like the fact that we had, yeah, that we have, you know, we, we're still going to have to deal with this good and evil dance. Maybe that also gives, like, Franny the extra purpose. Because I know, like, the most that I ever thought about having kids, I thought I was going to have two. And I stopped at one because I was like, no, thank you. Oh, <laughs> a girl, lot of work. same. Girl, same. <laughs> So the idea of being told that I'm supposed to have five children because I'm key to repopulate the earth can be really overwhelming. And I think the interaction and the experience with flag, that extreme temptation, and then still willing to just sacrifice your life 
life because you have like you're just so principled in not going to bed, you know, or not making out with um, Satan's nephew, uh, you know, that. <laughs> I think that that was like super powerful and that probably just adds to her staying razor focused when <laughs> she's like overwhelmed with five kids <laughs> later on. Right. It's like, I'm populating the earth. <laughs> Somehow I don't think any of their names are going to be Randall right. <laughs> or Russell. I bet a mother of five though, that has bitten Satan nephew's uh, lip off. Uh <laughs> It's probably a pretty oh. cool cucumber, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I fucking love that scene. That that was a big redemption thing. So I was like, yes, like this is the gritty version of Franny that I remember from the books and why I loved her so much. She wasn't dainty. She wasn't like the, somebody who in distress. She didn't, she didn't give a fuck that she was pregnant. She was just like, move forward. Just keep going. She was super resourceful. And when she fucking like bites his lip, I was kind of half hoping for a little bit more like gore. Like, let me see her bite a piece of his fucking tongue off. Like, <laughs> I mean, because, in fairness, like he ripped out a guy's heart. Why not? Right. He fucking like finger pistol shot somebody. Like, yeah, let him like have to regrow his tongue for being such a affluent, evil bastard. At the last second, Sheila and I had a chance to interview Brad William Henke or Tom Cullen, as you might know him, on the day this podcast was supposed to come out, in fact. So rather than miss the opportunity, we did our best to get him interviewed and attach it to this podcast. So here it is in its entirety, that interview where he answers some questions about some scenes that we thought should have been there, but were missing amongst other things. So here we go. Brad William Henke. This is Hall with Pod Clubhouse. This is Sheila with Pod Clubhouse. And it is our pleasure to bring to you an interview with Brad William Henke. You might know him better as Tom Cullen from The Stand. Thanks for joining us today, Brad. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. It is completely our pleasure, Brad. The first time I noticed you was um, Bram on Lost. And ever since then, it's been like, hey, it's that guy. It's the same guy again. <laughs> but yeah. the funny thing is... When it came to Tom and I looked you up, I was like, I didn't know that it was you. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. And I read that online and that made me very happy. Like a lot of people were like, oh, shoot, that's Piscatella. Like that. It was, it was funny. <laughs> I kind of grit my teeth every time his name is said. So no offense. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand. And it, it was nice to play a role, you know, with such a big heart and everything instead of having people wanting to slap me when they see me on the street. So this one was really nice. Well, let's roll back a little bit. You were born in Nebraska, is that right? I was, yes. And you grew up in Colorado, So, but you went to school in Arizona, so it sounds like you probably had enough of the uh, Big Eight in their, in their winters. Well, actually, you know, I, I wanted to get a football scholarship, and no one wanted to give me a scholarship in the Big Eight. So um, I actually went to a junior college first in California, and then I went to Arizona, and I took my recruiting trip in the winter, because if I would have went there in the summer, I would not have went there. <laughs> I remember the first day I pulled in, I had an old 68 Oldsmobile with no AC. And I was like, what the hell? It wasn't like this before. Six That's months removed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
So after football was done, it looks like you started working and acting and made that transition, like, as I might say, in the Northeast, wicked fast. Um, (laughs) (laughs) How did you do that? How did you flip gears? Had acting always been there or? Yeah, I was kind of interested in acting. I took some acting classes when I was in college, but I couldn't like do a play or anything because we had spring football. But then when I was cut, you know, I had an ankle operation because I hurt my ankle, my ankle very badly in college and it was kind of turning into arthritic. So I had a couple scopes and then a reconstruction and I tried out again. Then I played in this thing called the World League. Then I tried out again. Then I played the CFL, the Arena League, and then I was done. Eventually, no one would let me play for them anymore. And so then I coached for a year because I didn't know what else to do. And I didn't like that. And then um, just randomly, someone said, hey, they need extra football players to be in the background of a, of a commercial. And so I did that. And I ran into a guy who invited me to an acting class. And I went to this acting class. And this guy was up there doing his scene. He was crying. And I'm like, what the hell makes this dude just cry up there on stage? I don't ever cry, you know, because I was playing football all my whole life where they teach you or you just teach yourself, like, I'm not tired. Tell yourself you're not tired. Tell yourself you're not intimidated. Tell yourself you're not injured. So by the end, they're asking this guy what he felt about this or that. I said, I've never heard that question in my life. So I just started going to class, actually just to figure myself out. And I was going to take like three classes at once, a Uta Hagen class, method acting class. And I just, I just really loved it. I was like, this is what I should have been doing my whole life. One of the roles that I know you for is Coover on Justified. Uh-huh. And I have to ask, just what is a Coover? <laughs> I don't even know. I've never thought <laughs> I mean, I know they're from Kentucky and they have some words that aren't normally used in other places. <laughs> Stuff like that. Germane to there. <laughs> right. I just want to say. Coover's just a name, though. Like, like. Dimitri, or you know what I mean? Cooper. Is it? It's just it must be a regional sort of thing. Yeah, I'm not, I haven't met any Coopers. <laughs> me, me neither. Speaking of Justified, though, there is some crossover between some of the talent on that show and The Stand. Is there any of that synergy that Taylor and Benjamin might have had with you that existed prior that you carried over to The Stand, like collaborating with them again? I think that the second season is kind of when they were coming into their own as uh, writers on the show. I know that they were writing a lot of those episodes, so I think we became close then. And then uh, I did Sneaky Pete with Ben. So I think that they write well for me. And also they, they you know, from Coover to my role in Sneaky Pete, was, which was a dad, to The Stand, they're so open to me, you know, making 180s and being completely different characters, not always having to play like the same type of character for them. So I, I really am so thankful for them. So just in terms of like not playing the same character. So I, I do have a question about your role as Piscatella in Orange is the New Black, only because his on-screen death is one of the ones I still cheer for. Okay. <laughs> sorry. I sorry. Well, yes. because, you know, you didn't play the I nicest dude. I went to my and cried afterwards, but okay. <laughs> okay, good, good. So, you know, like, so um, because Tom and Desi are so diametrically opposed, but yet you play both of them so easily. So my question is, how much of a backstory do you develop on your characters? Well, what was great about The Stand is I had never read the book, so I read the scripts first. And so then when I read the book and I, I read the book and then like when I drive, drove to Vancouver, I listened to it on tape. So the book just offered actor notes for me, like wear this jacket or put this on your bike when you're leaving, you know, um, 
just you know it just it just told me so much about the character so much about my backstory so i didn't have to make up anything i gotta ask a question follow up to that the dolly parton shirt was that you or was that you know wardrobe what happened was what happened was um (laughs) I I i was trying to develop my voice right and sometimes when people have a head injury the way that they learn to speak again is by singing a song and I had known someone I went to high school who was a few years older than me who had hurt his head. And, uh, I saw kind of his rehab. So I was trying to talk up here. Let me see if I can do it. So there's Dolly Parton's song. My coat of many colors. Hi, my name is Tom Combe. I'm 42 years old. So you see where I got I got the, like the yeah. register with that song. And so I was singing that song. And then pretty soon I was wearing that shirt. It was in my room. It was definitely a standout moment for us. We're like, hmm, we wonder like where that kind of came from. So, because it just works so well. It's such a, a, yeah. an organic thing to Tom. So uh, we appreciated that. There was a lot of details and we were like, mm, all of that's intentional. Yeah, totally, totally. So you hadn't read the book, but you used the book after you got the job to fill in some of the some of the blanks. Is that right? Right. Had you bothered to see the previous on-screen version of Tom? I didn't watch it on purpose. You know what I mean? Because I didn't want to be influenced one way or another, or, you know, I didn't want to have any idea what someone else did with the role. So that that's what happened there. Totally understandable. Have you watched it since? No, I haven't watched it since. <laughs> uh, I guess I don't want to see how I compare or something. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm watching this one and I'm watching this one a, as a fan. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause you know, I did a lot of scenes with, uh, my main man, Nick, but a lot of the stuff I was just kind of by myself. So uh, I'm watching these scenes for the first time and I'm loving them. Speaking of scenes, there's one that we thought in our podcast that, that felt missing and maybe you can shed some light on it. Just how in the heck did Tom get out of that truck? Yes. I mean, there was a scene shot where Tom got out of the truck. You I must tell. <laughs> it better not yeah, be part of an NDA. <laughs> No, I don't think it is. Um, so I'm in the truck and I'm hearing like the wolf howl. It's just dawned on me right now that they cut that scene. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it just kind of like the truck got to the end and I got out of it. But it, there was a time where the wolf was howling and that was scaring me. It was it was a really good moment. They also cut the scene where um, I see Nick in the uh, sandstorm or dust storm. And uh, he tells me where Stu is. I was watching last week and I'm like, well, wait, where's that scene? You know? Mm-hmm. And We were missing it too. You don't know if it's network. You know, you don't know why they decided to cut it, you know? But I was, as a as an actor, I was like, dang, that episode was only like 49 minutes. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> he could have put that scene in. But uh, I asked Ben about it and he's, you know, he said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, this, the network, but, but basically the network wanted them to hurry up and get along to Boulder or something. I'm not really sure why. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit. And, you know, with the, with regard to episode nine, at least, it felt like the emphasis needed to be on Franny from some uh-huh. storytelling point of view. and But that came at the cost of what people that had read the book knew to be quite a bit of time spent with Tom and Nick. Yeah. Like I said, we shot it. And then there was a, um, one thing we didn't shoot because of COVID, it, you know, because we had to leave is there was going to be more of like a, a trek with myself and Stu. But then when COVID came, they're like, yeah, we're just not going to shoot that. 
but uh, the scene with Nick we shot, and I really liked it too. Here, you don't get to see it, so I'm going to tell you. It was kind of like we were in the middle of this dust storm, so we almost looked like silhouette when we talked. Like Even though when the camera was close, it was just kind of like our forms in this dust. It looked really beautiful. And then he tells me where Stu is, and then I added this thing, which is not in the book, but my glasses had broken getting into the truck. And so I kind of looked at uh, my main man, Nick, and just like as my character, I just made it. So me seeing him fixed my sight so I didn't need my glasses. Now, I just did that as an actor. Do you know what I mean? Like I took it off and I looked at him and then I just talked to him. So yeah, I wish all that was in there. But you can't worry. I can't worry about that. I just have to just put my all into the scenes and someone else is putting it together. Like, I don't want to be a director. I don't want to be a producer. I just want to play my role. Well, I'm definitely hoping that those scenes make it into some director's cut or in like the DVD version with the deleted scenes, because the journey of Tom was something that we talked about quite at length, actually, over like episodes eight and nine. And we definitely felt that we needed Tom. We needed the resolution. I personally was very upset. I'm like, I, I hope Tom's glasses aren't broken as he was being, you know, mangled into the truck with all the dead bodies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was my anxiety. I planned to get him mangled there. And then I was going to, you know, have my sight fixed by Nick. So it kind of like I felt like because I did shoot it, I was missing it. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like if you read a book first and then you see the show, you're like, where was this? Where was this? Where was this? You know what I mean? So since I shot it, I did miss it. And I was like, hey, Ben, that scene wasn't in there. It's going to be in episode nine. And he was like, no. (laughs) Sadly, no. (laughs) But, you know, I I trust Ben and Taylor so much that, you know, I just have to kind of go with it. We had come from this as book readers. And so in episode nine, when Stu and Tom just show up at the 4th of July party or whatever that was, uh, or not 4th of July, it was just some remembrance party in the spring. We were just sort of like, oh, you know, I guess all's well that ends well. Because you already saw it? Yes. Yes, yeah. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. Do we not come in when uh, she just had her baby? They have gone through the baby and the baby being sick. All that stuff. But then, but I'm saying, like, do we walk in and they're kind of like some people around and, and it's dark and there's some lights and then we come in? Yes. 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 Yeah. Okay. Okay. Do I have a funny line at the end of that scene or no? You know, I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay, because. Oh, what was the line? Because when I saw the baby, I was like, that's your baby, Stu? <laughs> you know what I mean? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Because she says, this is your daddy. Yeah. But- yes. Yes. And I, and I look at the kid and I'm like, that's your baby, Stu? Uh, like everyone laughed. I do not remember that line. I don't remember that line either. It wasn't I mean, a scripted line. I just said it when I saw it. You know what I mean? The whole maybe time it's there thought, and it was just dubbed or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, who knows? Because, you know, I, I saw those two together all the time. So I just thought it was his baby. We get screeners. So sometimes they're slightly different than, you know, what, what gets put on TV. Yeah, yeah we, we always ask for forgiveness. Like we, we're we're seeing a version; it may not be the final version. <laughs> so we right, ask for artistic right. forgiveness. Yes, there is one scene in there that I wish was there. It kind of like brings uh, Nick full circle, and it kind of makes it so my main man Nick helps me find Stu. But like one last time, yeah. Yeah, but I just concentrate on all what was there because uh, it was such a great uh, role for me. Speaking of what was there, you know, with the book having been written such a long time ago, the language that King used to describe Tom was 
you know, it was the way people talked when the book was written, but it's not really reflective of the more person-centered type language that we might use today. So when we see, you know, your version of Tom, you know, we're TV fans, we're TV podcasters, so we know that writers have, have a lot to do with that, but that doesn't matter if the right actor doesn't put that into motion. So what did you do to prep for Tom? Because what Sheila and I have commented on all season is just how respectful the update to Tom is, because it could have gone a lot of the directions, and we're very happy with the way that you took it. So when I was in high school, this uh, kid, he was two years older than me. His name was Ed Reinhardt Jr. He played football and he went to the University of Colorado and he had a blood clot in his brain. Oh it broke in his brain. And from then on, he was kind of like Tom. And I saw him after that. And he said, in here, still me. And he was very frustrated because he was a 4.0 student. He was a really smart guy. So that definitely had effect on me. And I found a tape of him on YouTube talking. In fact, I knew him. I, I would see him when he was rehabbing it. And that's, you know, where I got where he was singing the songs and learning to talk and, and all that stuff. And then when I coached football for one year at a junior college, I met this guy. His name was Tom Evans, who was uh, mentally challenged. And uh, like that movie Radio, I made him the manager of the football team. And he just had a great time. So I, there was two people in my life that I cared about a lot that I, I kind of knew in and out and know their frustrations and knew um, the challenges that they had. And so I was that, I guess you say respectful. I would hope I was respectful of every type of character, but I just wanted to, you know, I've had so many people on Instagram. Oh my God, it made me cry. Like they say like, uh, you know, my son or daughter saw you and they said, that's me, mom. And that just was like, amazing to hear and then it's just great that you see that you know tom does have a lot of strengths and he does have a lot of courage and he's capable of a lot and he's a hero so um, that was really what i put into he's so integral to the end of the story like how the end actually comes about so just to have that role and that attention for somebody with the challenges that he has and then just the way you played it. We talked about every single episode, anytime that Tom was ever like, it's just how much heart that Tom brings to the episode and how human he is and how he reminds people how to be better. So thank you for playing him that way. So one of our favorite Tom scenes came at the end of the series when he's saying goodbye to Stu and to Franny just how touching that moment is and, and how we felt that, you know, when he was, when Franny said, I love you, that like, that might've been the first time that Tom had heard that in a really long time. Or the first time ever. We, we didn't want to go that far. We said, well, maybe since mom's died, you know, maybe he hasn't heard it in a long time uh -huh. because Tom has definitely experienced love in his life. We feel um, because yeah. you don't get to be that sweet and that kind without having known how to model it. So we want to ask, do you have a favorite Tom moment or was there a scene for you that was particularly memorable? Well, I haven't seen this goodbye scene, which, by the way, was the very first day I was on set was the goodbye scene. <laughs> wow. I'm like, oh, my God. I, okay, let's do you it. Had to, you, know you had I mean? to reach deep for some of that emotion then. <laughs> yeah, because I didn't live it yet. You know what I right. mean? So uh, did you like that scene? You like that scene, huh? Yes, it yes. was really effective. Yeah. Yes. It was do I, do really I, well done. Do I chase after the truck for a little bit? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, good, good. Like, I was getting a little teary-eyed with, like, my laws, my laws, when he's, like, you know, wrenching <laughs> his hands and, you know, trying to yeah. try to hold yeah. it together with the Dolly yeah. Parton shirt on. I was like, oh, it survived. Thank God. It survived New Vegas. 
Side note, though, you say, so you don't even see me in episode nine come and get Stu? You guys just show up at the at the event. Like you don't even see me in the desert with him? You show up in the silhouette of the dust cloud following the nuclear blast. And then I talk to him and go, Stu, Stu? You you see Kojak, and uh-huh. then, then that's that's sort of the end of episode eight, right, Paul? Yeah. Right, but yeah. on episode nine, I'm not with Stu at all? It starts out with Franny doing narration, and then uh-huh. we follow her for a little while, and we wind up at this evening uh, somber yeah. re- remembrance, and that's when you guys show up. Damn, that sucks because I saved Stu. Um, <laughs> we know. <laughs> we know. I was there. I was there that night. I saved him. Um, so I would say. Um, yes, Stu was in a bad spot before you showed up. So we know. We right. know what you did. We read let's, the subtext. Oh, come on, let's have some more uh, Tom moments. Yeah, I, I don't know why we didn't have that, but um, all right. Let's not talk about that. All right, so. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. My favorite, okay, well, this is a favorite moment. Okay, so um, Henry Zaga and I are out in the hallway. It's like three in the morning. We're, we're shooting that, about to shoot that scene with uh, Whoopi. We've shot it a little bit, and I shot something else before, but now it's like four in the morning. And they bring around these candies, these chocolates, and I'm like craft service. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll take it. I'm tired. So I'm eating this chocolate. I guess like it's the best thing I've ever had in my life. And Henry goes, oh, my God, you have to do that in the scene. So if you rewatch, I think it's uh, four, when we're walking in, I'm like, hello, I'm eating this big thing of chocolate. And it was just perfect for my character. And and Henry told me to do it, which I thought was so sweet because he's just the best actor and the best dude. I say the best kid. He's a grown man, but he's just a great guy. And so he was so fun to work with. And and it didn't end up in the show, but she's like, uh, at the end, Whoopi's like, did you bring some of that chocolate for me? And I was like, no, I didn't know I was going to see you or whatever. But, you know, so, <laughs> so, uh, so that night was just really fun. I, another day that was fun, I don't know why, was um, when they tell me to go to Vegas. I love that scene, shooting that scene where I'm like, if there's more than one run, if there's one, kill it. That one. Like, yeah, I really yeah. yeah, because you saw glimpses of what I was capable of, you know, that I did understand. That was a, that was a change that we had discussed from book to TV show. And I wonder, was that change ever discussed with you? Had it gone, would it have gone, you know, multiple directions, given that originally he was supposed to have been hypnotized? Right. As opposed to just understanding what's going on. You know, it's it's kind of like I said. It's better to read the script first and then read the book because then the book, because then you're not like, I can't shoot this unless I'm hypnotized. You know what I mean? Like you have to like figure out in in this version, I think I was just able to show that I was capable of more. Oh, we were happy with the change. There, there, there's um, a a large amount of vocal people. I don't know if there are a large amount of people in general, just more like the loudest group of people anyway that we're hoping to have seen every letter of the 800 page book you know shown on the screen as is i wish they would have because i would have had a job for three years (laughs) (laughs) you'd be standing there'd be the stand we'd have the sit we'd have the meal we'd have the lay down all along our group was you know trying to make the most of the adaptation and trying to understand the changes and and for the most part we liked everything especially including this losing the hypnotism bit and relying on the idea that tom was in fact capable and just the respectful nature of it yeah i agree 
I agree. I agree. Totally. What is next for you? What's up next for, for Brad? Interesting question because, you know, we ended this March 12th. I was tired because I had just done Manhunt for three months before I did the stand for Which is fantastic. Months. Oh, you liked it? That's cool. I loved Thanks. it. I love you all know, things like true crime, murdery. A little weird. <laughs> so I was ready for a break of like a month or two, but not this. And so I, I have had a couple things that were supposed to go in November, and then they got pushed because of this. But I, I was offered a, a movie last week, and there's a couple TV shows that I'm being considered for. So I think it's about to pick up. So I think for sure I'm going to be working in March. But I don't know on what yet because I have like three things. So hopefully I can do two of them or not just one of them. That is fantastic. Well, we're definitely going to be on the lookout for all things Brad Hanke. Yeah, sure. your your resume does not have gaps after a long, quite a while ago. I mean, it's it's stacked. So you can imagine how crazy I've been going this for twelve months, just you know, riding my bike and, and the, the lull in activity. Yes, I know. Yeah. I'm not ready for it to be March again. I'm really not. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, like when this first started, you could sign up for like these. Yale online classes. I'm going to do this. I'm going to learn to do this. And, you know, I haven't done anything. None of that stuff no. actually happened. I had all these grand plans too. You haven't picked up yeah. Mandarin yet? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just like, I'm just, no, exactly. I was going to learn Russian. No, instead, I'm just watching uh, Married at First Sight. I've seen every season. Yeah. <laughs> well, I started podcasting as my pandemic hobby. So that, that's well, You're doing great. You did oh, something I'm doing great. fantastic. We had a, a chance to talk to Fish a little bit. Oh, yeah. Earlier this season. Yeah. And he spoke to us about sort of the ominous timing of putting out one of 20th century's best known plague stories in the middle of a plague. <laughs> and how that would be received. And how that would be received. Was was there any kind of ooky type, type feelings once everyone understood what was going on? Or was it just more like, man, this is serious and how's, how's this all going to work? I got to tell you, I was still in my own world. I was just being calm. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so like, all that stuff just went right by me. I just went and sat in the corner in my chair. And then when it was time to go, I went. It, it was funny, too, because when we were shooting, like when I was in Vegas and I was mopping up the uh, stuff. pool and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like I would just sit down there. You know, there was a million extras and I would just sit down in my chair. And then, you know, people would tell me, oh, you can't sit here, you know, and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, I'm doing a good job. well brad i think that's all of our questions for you today it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you though oh it's been fantastic thank you so much thank you guys too and you know it's like don't get hung up in the scenes that aren't there because like literally for me yeah i wish that scene was there but it literally was the best acting experience of my life so i'm just happy to have gotten to do it and i'm I'm really happy that people uh, saw the respect and, and the stuff that you said like this uh, about the character. I really appreciate that. And we mean it. I have a family with members in the special needs community. As do I. We try not to go into into situations ready to have our hackles raised, but it can't be helped sometimes. <laughs> we have a heightened sensitivity, right? But yeah, that's a more direct way to say it. And yeah. uh, this in no way set off my alarms at all. Oh, that's good. I think if you approach every character with no Knowing that someone has a heightened sensitivity about it, you really put in the extra work and really put in the extra layers that they feel respected. And we definitely got that from your portrayal of Tom in, in this updated version of The Stand. And, and like Paul said, we were really just coming at this like, yes, we read the book, but we're here for the adaptation. And what you brought to it just gave the character so much more depth 
and just so much more of a real presence. And it, we were just highly enjoying all the moments. And we just want to thank you again for that. Thank you guys so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Brad. Thank you so all much. Right. All right. Have a great day. You too. You too. Bye now. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, guys, I'd like to thank you guys for joining me on our journey through Mordor. No, uh, <laughs> uh, on, the, on our, uh, on, on this coverage of the stand, it's been a real treat getting to talk to you guys every week about this series. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It was awesome. Well, this has been Paul and Sheila and Inez. And, uh, if the stand two comes out, then maybe we'll come back. You mean <laughs> sit? Right. That's right. Sit. Lunch. (laughs) (laughs) No burpees, please. (laughs) All right. Till next time, everybody. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.